For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics. Along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and sitting in for Ryan Kiesel is ACLU political and advocacy director Nicole McAfee. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. For the second week in a row, the state Supreme Court shoots down a Republican law. Justices say a 2014 law limiting abortion-inducing medication is unconstitutional. House Bill 2684 never took effect because of the court challenge. Nicole, what do you think of this ruling? Um, I think that that it's great when the Supreme Court can uphold the Constitution, and that's what they did very much in this ruling. Uh, you, you look at this bill and, and the intent of it, and I think that um, anytime we get into an area where folks are trying to limit access to safe legal abortion, it's always something that we keep a careful eye on, and this certainly did that. And so I think that really encouraging folks to use the, the latest version of um, FDA-approved regulations is is best here. Neva? Well, I think that, uh, I think Senator Treat, uh, he made a point that I, that I agree with, and that is that I think to most Oklahomans, it does seem reasonable to uh, uh, to have just the, the basic information on the, on the on the pill bottle. I mean, to find out, uh, you know, what what is there. The the intent clearly of the of the measure was to protect the health and safety of women. And so, I think that you have a, a Supreme Court right now that clearly, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, came down on on the side that is really uh, counter to what I think most Oklahomans would uh, you know would see this as being as being the proper you know proper view on this particular issue. Now, the, the FDA had changed its rule uh, or its, its decision in 2016 after this bill was written. So it seemed like it was it was more in line with the, the Supreme Court was basically saying, well, the FDA has already made a decision on this. Well, the FDA had made a decision, but I think the Supreme Court was also making a uh, making a statement that probably went far beyond uh, just this particular issue in in question and what they were affirming. So I think it's the it, it is uh, with the courts uh, very much the philosophical difference I think that we see on some of these issues and the pro life uh, pro uh, abortion issues tend to be uh, at the forefront of many of these uh, many of these points. And Nicole, the Senate President Pro Tem actually said. That the state Supreme Court was the most uh, uh, pro uh, non pro life uh, of any <laughs> court out there. Uh, do you agree with something like that? Um, I think that uh, myself and a lot of folks who fight this issue on a regular basis would not agree with that. Um, I think it's interesting too that in this in this timeline where we're very much looking at a, a kind of opposite version of this uh, bill currently in Senate Bill six fourteen that was just signed. Um, that on one side we have uh, pro tem treat arguing that. They should stick the only the FDA approved and only the, you know, kind of on record, on label information on on abortion medication. And on the other side, they're saying, well, we should use some unfounded uh, scientific claims and we should force every doctor to share that information out. So it's kind of seems to, to be whatever fits in the legislature for for an argument around abortion access. Right. And Governor Stitt has signed a controversial bill that dealing with the drug induced abortion. Senate Bill 614 requires clinics to post signs saying the procedure is reversible despite evidence to the contrary. Neva, the governor's signature isn't much of a surprise. It's not a surprise. I mean, we've talked about it before. I mean, he made it clear throughout the campaign and since he's been governor. He is going to sign pro-life legislation. And to say it's controversial, when you really look at how this kind of sailed through the legislature, I mean, it had, uh, uh, as it went through the committees, it had a 10-2 vote on the Senate side and committee, 39-8 in the, in the Senate. Uh, then it went on on the House side. 
uh, sailed through in the in the House committee, had a 74-24 vote in in the House. I mean, basically, you know, largely along party lines on the on this issue, and the governor signing it. So I think what we have in this instance is that we have a bill that really, by the admission of the uh, uh, the author Senator Daniels uh, from Bartlesville, that it's really a proactive measure. I mean, it's a proactive measure that allows women to attempt the possibility of reversing a preg- uh, reversing a medical abortion if they decide to within you know within a certain time frame. So I think that uh, I think that we're seeing this not only in Oklahoma but in many states, and I think this is an issue that clearly, when you look at this legislature, as we've said many times, it is a pro-life legislature that uh, finds it very easy to uh, not only put forward but to pass this type of legislation. Nicole. Yeah, I think. You think that, especially in the case of this bill, framing it in in a pro-life context is especially dangerous and scary because it's a time when um, the legislature is really playing politics with medical access and with people's bodies and lives. Um, And and that's always scary to me. I think that the website that folks are now going to be forced to post and go to is is something that isn't medically accurate, that isn't necessarily a, a technologically safe website that we're now sending Oklahomans to regularly. And I think that these measures and their popularity nationwide um, is an example of people trying to create restrictions that limit abortion access um, by just making so many sort of outrageous barriers for people who provide that level of care to people, folks. Um, and it's it's something that I think I'm especially wary of when I look at bills like Senate Bill 614, um, just because we seem so willing to overlook um, doctor's advice for the sake of of claiming that um, Oklahoma is a pro-life state. Well, but I think when you look at this, I mean, you talk about posting, posting something, giving information, that is not restricting access. I mean, this has nothing to do with the fact that the access is still there. What it does is afford the opportunity to put more information in front of that particular individual as that decision is being made. And I think that is where you're finding a great amount of public support for this type of uh, action. I feel like it restricts access, though. I'd just like to say, I mean, it makes it a felony if you if doctors don't provide this information um, with a fine of $10,000 against the facility in addition to a doctor losing their license because of that felony. And I think that by using scare tactics, that is a way of essentially moving towards restrictions. But, doc- but doctors also have uh, those same type of... Uh, uh, restrictions or those same type of uh, felony potentials there on other actionable items that they take uh, professionally. So it's not just isolated to this type of, you know, this type of issue that we're talking about. That's on many issues. So I think that's, again, kind of one of those, uh, they throw it out there and try to make it uh, sensationalize that as, as something that uh, that this is the only way that uh, any action on a medical professional's part is being criminalized when there are many, you know, many uh, areas where that would be true. But so, not on controversial subjects where some, I mean, you've got some of the, the, the pediatric association and others saying this is not legitimate. Well, you have so. associations and leadership who clearly uh, have uh, have a long history of being very pro-choice, being very, you know, very engaged on that side of the spectrum as opposed to the individuals on the other side who are saying that there are legitimate, uh, legitimate concerns and reasons uh, to approach it from the standpoint of giving this additional information. So I think we're always going to have this give and take because there are clearly two points of view uh, on this issue and they will always be there. So in in this instance, I think in Oklahoma, what we're seeing is that the pro-life point of view has uh, been the more dominant. 
Well, the governor has vetoed a measure which would have given overtime pay to state employees making less than $31,000 a year. The Oklahoma Public Employees Association says it's disappointed in Stitt's veto of House Bill 2465, which would have helped workers who have had to pick up extra shifts because of short staffing from budget cuts. Nicole, were you surprised by this veto? Um, I, I was certainly disappointed by it. I'll say that. I think that, I mean, just when we look at this level of pay, so folks making less than $31,000 a year and what that means for salary and income and trying to live off that, um, you know, really taking into consideration then the fact that these people are being asked to do above and beyond their, you know, what they, they signed up for based on, on staffing, um, and trying to think about like the agencies this affects and, and how these people are, are working for a better Oklahoma, the fact that we can't give them that overtime pay that they definitely deserve um, is, is is really sad, I think, for, for all the employees in our state. Neva, this bill had overwhelming support. I mean, in fact, actually, if it went back and got the same amount of votes, they could override this veto. Absolutely. But it, it, what we have here is really a, a, a bill that's not complete. I mean, there's no there's no true fiscal impact uh, uh, that's really been addressed here in terms of, you know, when you look at the information. And I think that's what the governor basically said in his veto message is, look, it's unfortunate, but we don't have across the board policies uh, for all state and agencies and employees. So, uh, uh, because we don't have that currently in statute, let's pause, let's, you know, let's rewind, let's bring everybody back to the table and develop some uniform across the board policies, which clearly no one is arguing uh, should be the case. It's just it hasn't happened. But to just pass a bill, not knowing what the impact is, certainly the financial impact, not knowing really, I mean, what are we talking about in terms of, uh, of real numbers? I mean, how many employees are we talking about? Is it across all agencies? What, what, uh, what are we talking about in terms terms of uh, uh, being able to get the comp, uh, the comp time versus uh, uh, being able to um, uh, get the overtime pay. I mean, th there there were more questions left, I think, at the end of this, uh, passing this particular piece of legislation than there were answers. And I think the governor uh, correctly took out his veto pen and said, look, let's. I'm willing to come back, work with the authors of this bill, uh, take a hard look at it and see what we can do. But there there's a lot of unfinished business here. Governor Stitt has rescinded his nomination of a second term for Wildlife Commissioner Danny Robbins, who was appointed by Governor Fallon in 2011 and has support of five other commissioners. Robbins says Stitt's move comes after a battle between the agency and Republican lawmakers. Neva, was this a political move? Well, I think I think it, it really is more potentially, I think, reflective of this um, kind of fight between the legislature and the Wildlife Commission. I mean, you, you have this ongoing, and it's kind of stepped up in the last couple of years, not only in the bills that they've put forward, but uh, just this this fight of here you have this commission that basically is statutory, uh, or, or it's constitutional, and they do their, you know, they kind of do their work, and the legislature's not really had the ability to, uh, in, at, at times, influence them like they would like. And so I think you've had some legislation that's uh, that's moved forward. And, you know, their position has been that these folks have probably been uh, out there uh, lobbying, you know, lobbying for or against legislation, that sort of thing. They came out uh, at the beginning of this session and basically uh, took a look at 20 plus bills that uh, that that uh, uh, dealt with the Wildlife Commission and uh, and made a policy statement on on those. And I think that that, you know, didn't set well with a lot of legislators that uh, 
you know, basically see them as uh, interfering in, in, in kind of their role. So I think, I think that's really where the skirmish is. And I think then you've had, you've had some bills, uh, including another bill that the governor uh, vetoed last week that uh, allowed for uh, nighttime uh, guided tours to hunt deer. I mean, the Wildlife Commission was, uh, was opposed to it. Uh, hunters, you know, were, were opposed to it. Uh, and yet you had some lawmakers that were adamantly, you know, pushing this, right. uh, you know, legislation and others on feral hogs. and on another. There's, there's just a whole long list of those that seem to be growing uh, with every legislative session. So I think that uh, the, the nomination itself, the governor certainly has the prerogative. These are, uh, these are eight commissioners with eight-year appointments. Uh, we have commissioners that have been on there. I think the longest, uh, uh, the longest uh, appointee has been on there since 1954. So these are folks that, that take this this role and this public service very seriously and I think that uh, you know we're just going to have to see how they can sort this out and you know and really I think the governor and his influence in this process with who he selects as future commissioners will have a dramatic impact on it. Nicole. Yeah I think I'll be really interested to see who who he puts out there in, in place of Robbins because I mean, so there were 36 wildlife related bills this session and the commission opposed 20 of them, um, which I think is a a big statement and a a chance to um, for the legislature to really look at why they oppose those and and come to the table and talk to these folks who are serving on behalf of a variety of agricultural interests in the state and really try to to figure out how to better represent those. Um, And so it's a a little disappointing when you, you see kind of this maybe fear tactic used here that uh, that Robin's um, appointment was rescinded. And what does that mean for the other folks on the commission? Um, I, I know that um, the only commissioner uh, who didn't sign on to the letter, Brewster, said that he very much did not sign on because it had the potential to anger legislators. And it seems that he was very right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think when you look at the at Article 26 in the Constitution, I mean, it clearly it says that uh, the Wildlife Commission is supposed to manage wildlife based on science and for the common good. I mean, they mm-hmm. are supposed to be the, there to, the, to to fend on the part of what is good for for all Oklahomans and 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 doing that rise above politics and special interests and I think that's where the rub has come is that they've really pushed back on this notion that lawmakers uh, if there is any attempt to be you know very uh, either heavy-handed or you know push on it on matters that they believe very strongly runs counter to what's good uh, based upon based upon what they view their role as as, as the Wildlife Commission then I think we're going to see this ongoing you know this ongoing struggle for uh, not only uh, legislation but just general perception uh, in in the in the uh, wider public spectrum of what the, what should be done relative to uh, wildlife in Oklahoma while legislative leaders and the governor are still working on a budget the democrats released their version it includes medicaid expansion raises for educators and supporters st- support staff as well as 200 million dollars extra in classroom funding it would be paid for by reversing income tax cuts on high earners nicole the budget has no hope of seeing light of day so why release it um i think i think it's a value statement i think in an ideal situation where there's less polarization that folks would really be able to come to the table and have an actual discussion about what a budget should look like and what different needs in different parts of the state and different constituencies are. Um, and, and we're just in a space where that's not happening. But I think um, for the Democrats to be able to say, this is where our values lie and these are the things that we are going to continue to fight to invest in, I think that that's really critical um, for a lot of the, the folks that they represent and whose voices are often not heard at the table um, at present. And so I think 
especially their their sort of budget proposals around criminal justice reform and echoing uh, a broader conversation on Medicaid expansion um, reflect conversations that they hope that they can move forward in the legislative process at some point. On Thursday morning, actually, uh, it seemed like the Democratic budget and Governor Stitt were kind of agreeing on something like paying the courts and uh, prosecutors rather than having them deal with fines and fees. They both basically agree on that. Spot. Right. And I think and I think some of the things that they brought forward are things that have a building consensus uh, taking place. I mean, what they didn't, I think what was most interesting to me was what was not in in their in their budget uh uh, in their budget proposal that they released, and that was there was no two percent on GPT, there was no fifty cent, uh, in, you know, tax in, increase on cigarettes, and on the cap, uh, the cap gains. I believe there was an agriculture carve out on that, and I think I think that's significant because when you listen to what they were saying, they were basically, in some measure, I think, trying to. Uh, what they described, I think, is restore the faith in rural Oklahoma. They're trying to go back and broaden and get past just being, um, you know, this um, the metropolitan uh, Democrats uh, and trying to go back out and uh, uh, capture some of those folks that still are lifelong Democrats in rural Oklahoma who they have lost on many issues that they that they really didn't reflect their views and values in rural Oklahoma. So I think when you start talking about criminal justice, when you start talking about rural hospitals, and keeping them open when you start talking about issues that that are front and center uh, in small town rural Oklahoma I think that that's where Republicans and Democrats alike have to have an, have a have to have a message that um, th- that really uh, resonates with those folks out there and I think Democrats made a concerted effort in what they were saying in their budget uh, in their budget uh, rollout of trying to affirm some of these things that uh, in the past maybe have been drowned out by other issues that have gotten you know, more attention. Nicole, does this also help uh, Democrats go out on the campaign trail and say, this is kind of what I'm supporting so they can go out and, and show that this is what I'm trying to trying to show, trying to work for for you? I, I, I mean, I certainly think so, and I hope so. And I think that um, it really reflects, too, just an, an understanding of conversations that have been left behind in the state and that are often cut out of sort of budget negotiations. I, um, as someone who has spent time knocking doors and talking to voters out in rural Oklahoma, there are a lot of people who don't want to talk about the one bad abortion bill that is getting all of the news attention. What they want to talk about is the fact that all of the hospitals nearby them closed and they now have to drive several hours or across state lines for for access to care. Um, Or I talk to people who want to talk about not only the fact that we need to fund the courts and prosecutors better, but that indigent defense across the state of Oklahoma has been underfunded and under-resourced for years and that we've got to move towards some sort of real funding there. So I think it, it definitely is, is I'm sure, a step forward in, in looking towards new elections. But I hope, too, as we, we kind of move into a space where people are looking to work together more, um, and I think we're seeing that in the legislature as we've especially elected more women who are willing to do some of that bipartisan work, um, that it's not only a value statement, but sort of a, a starting point for some conversations and some real work together, too. I think it was interesting and should be noted that one of the things the Democrats in their plan did uh, call for was reversing the income tax cuts that we've seen in recent years on high earners. So they didn't they didn't pass on the opportunity to kind of make that <laughs> make that shot, which has been, uh, again, one of those perennial divides between Republicans and Democrats as they talk about budget issues. Uh, and so I think that I think 
think on both sides that they have tamped down on uh, the issues that they are intractable on. And for Democrats, I mean, they clearly made that point again on their on their point of view on uh, tax cuts. Any thoughts on when the Republicans are going to put out their budget? Have we heard anything? We well, been... I think the general consensus uh, at the Capitol, from what from what I gather, you know, in the in the past week or so, is that uh, that the House and the Senate seem to be. Uh, uh, kind of coming together and kind of getting things uh, in, in in pretty good shape. I mean, it, it could very well blow apart as we're speaking, <laughs> you know, as, as we know, and we've seen so many, so many years past. But I think uh, I think now what we have is we're going to see with the legislative numbers and with the governor's numbers, I mean, whether they can come together, e- you know, relatively easily and find something that they can put together in the next few weeks. I mean, there's been this speculation now for several weeks. Would they get out early? What would that look like? Is it... Uh, you know, is it the middle of the month or will they go to the end of the month? I still always uh, contend that no matter how well-intentioned <laughs> they are, no matter how hard they try, they still tend to have to go right up to the wire uh, on the last day of May. But but we'll see. And I think uh, I think the the rollout of of the budget, um, given the fact that the governor from from the very beginning uh, said that he wanted uh, you know a specific number uh, uh, in the rainy day fund, will that go in the rainy day fund? What will that number? be or will there be some negotiations there? I mean, it's certainly a lot better picture to be dealing with this year than we've seen in years past because they actually have money to, uh, you know, money to appropriate and do some things and make some make some changes, but not to the degree that anyone, you know, uh, knows there's going to be a lot of folks still left unhappy at the end of the process. But I think it will be fascinating to see uh, how how these negotiations move forward in the next uh, in the next in the next couple of weeks and whether or not they can get out early. And Nicole and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.